Thank you so much for joining us today. We would love to know how this ministry is touching your life. Please take a moment and visit NBCOcala.com stories to tell us your story. Also, if you'd like to help support the ministry financially, you can give online or through our mobile giving app. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's message. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, love Pastor Lee and uh, Pastor Tim, and just honored that they would ask me to speak here. Uh, it's really a joy and a blessing to be here. We, we hear a lot about you at Gateway, uh, and this is my first time to be able to be here and see, see you, but this is uh, a church that we pray for a lot and uh, one that we're very connected to. We consider ourselves uh, you know, in, in many ways, sister churches with you. And we love you guys, care about you a lot. We're praying for you. And uh, so it's really just an honor for me to be here, an honor to, to be here. And uh, I, I used to, when I was in college, I used to live in Orlando. Uh, I didn't come up here uh, to Ocala, but I lived in Orlando for about two years. And uh, I, I'll tell you a little story about whenever I lived there. I was in college, um, you know, not that I'm very smart now, but I was even even dumber then. And uh, so uh, I'm in college, and I was driving this little two-door car. It was a Nissan 240SX. It was old, had a lot of miles on it. But it was a real small two-door, two-door car. And I, I got in my car one day. I was going to go to school. And when I got in my car, I sat down, and my arm rested on the center console. And I began feeling a tingling on my arm, uh, something that I, I had never felt before. It was a strange sensation. And I looked down at my arm, and crawling on my arm were hundreds of little spiders. Uh, for real. And uh, so the, the, and a spider had gotten into my car somehow and laid eggs, and they were everywhere. I mean, they were just crawling all over my arm. And I got out, and I looked, and they were on my shorts, and I was swatting them away. And, and so I, I shut the door real quick, and I went up to my uh, roommate who was up in our apartment, and I said, hey, can you, you got to take me to Walmart. I've got to get something to get rid of these spiders. So he said, okay. So we go to Walmart, and we're looking around in the pest control section. He said, what are you thinking? What do you want? I go, I don't care. I just want all of them dead. Um, I just want them to die. And uh, so we found a, a fumigator device. And uh, I, you know what it is. I can tell. I didn't. I didn't have any idea. It's like a smoke bomb. Like it just is smoke everywhere. And uh, so I go, this will work. This looks good to me. And he goes, fine with me. So we picked it up. This was a fumigator for a large five-bedroom house. <laughs> and I got back to my apartment, set it off, threw it in my little two-door car, shut the door, and then just stood there. And smoke began to come up and fill the car, and I thought, seems like it's working to me. We went upstairs to watch TV. And a couple minutes later, I got a knock on the door, and I opened the door, and there were three firemen standing there, and they looked very unhappy. Uh, As I remember it, might not be true, uh, but one of them was holding like a massive axe and like holding it like a bat, you know. I was just like, I was very terrified. And uh, he said, do you drive the maroon Nissan down there? I said, yes. And he said, can you come down for a moment? When I walked down the stairs, I am not kidding. The smoke was going hundreds of yards <laughs> into the air. And, just, and you could see it probably from like a mile away. And he's like, um, can, you want to tell me what you did? <laughs> so, uh, so I explained it to him. And they, they discovered that it was not actually on fire. And they let me off with a warning, which I was very happy for. Um, but uh, I, I have had some, some good times 
and some bad times here in Florida, uh, but this has been a very good one so far, so this has been great. Uh, I want to talk to you today, the message is titled, Marriage in Christ, Marriage in Christ, and uh, this, this message does have a little bit to do with marriage, but if you're not married, don't worry, uh, it's really about relationships, and even more than that, it's really about us as a body of Christ, our marriage with Christ, that we are the bride and he is the groom, and uh, it has a, a deep and profound impact on every relationship that we have and that we experience in our lives. And so we want to look through that and figure out how it affects us. So if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to Hosea chapter 2, verse 16. Hosea chapter 2, verse 16. Hosea 2, 16, and we'll get to, to that scripture in just a moment. But uh, today's message is you could consider it to be sort of like an episode of CSI um, or any kind of murder mystery. Uh, and let me explain to you why. Uh, we're going to start at the beginning of time, and then we're going to go through uh, the, the process of a young man looking for his future bride, looking for a spouse, uh, and then we'll go into a story of a cheating spouse, uh, and then at the end, someone dies. So it's going to be great. You're going to have a lot of fun. Um, it's, uh, it's a little bit like a murder mystery. So, uh, you know, put on your, your investigator hat and let's try to figure this out. Luke, or Hosea chapter 2 verse 16 says, It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi and will no longer call me Bali. I wanted you to open your Bibles and, and look for yourselves because I want you to see that I'm not lying to you. That is exactly what the scripture says. This is from the New King James Version and, uh, or the NASB. And it says the exact same thing in the New King James. So this is in many different versions. It says, therefore, declares the Lord, it will come about on that day that you will call me Ishi and will no longer call me Bali. So sort of a strange scripture. Um, and I'll tell you what it means, uh, but not right now. Um, the very last thing I'm going to tell you is what this scripture means at the very end of the message. And, and I, my hope is that uh, when we understand this scripture, it's going to draw together, pull together all the other things that we go through today. So ponder that as we move through this. Why w- what would cause the Lord to say something like this? Hey, don't call me Bali anymore. You call me Ishi. I know it makes so much sense. It's so interesting. I know. Marriage is a prefigurement for our relationship with Christ. It shows us what our relationship with Christ ought to be. It furthers our marriage relationship here on earth when it is grounded and rooted and centered in a relationship with Christ. And so we want to start, as I said, at the beginning of time. And so in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's the, the goal, the orientation in marriage is that they would become one flesh. Why is this important? Whenever we go back and we evaluate the, the, the creation of man and the earth and everything that God created, we look back in that moment and we see that when God created something, he spoke to what he wanted that thing to come from, to be sustained by, and to return to whenever it dies. Uh, for example, whenever he wanted fish, he spoke to the sea. You remember he said, let the sea bring forth fish that would swim and every creeping thing. And so you, you, you see that he's speaking to the sea. The, the, the fish come from the sea. They're sustained by the sea. They can only live within the sea. And then whenever they die, they return to the sea. Same thing with plants and trees. He spoke to the ground. 
Let the dirt bring forth the plants and the trees. And that, those plants, those trees, they come from the ground. They're sustained by the ground. If you were to remove it from the ground, it wouldn't live any longer. They're sustained by the ground. And then when they die, they return back to the ground. Our bodies were the same way. It was from dust, from dirt. They are coming from dirt, sustained by dirt, the food that we eat, things like that that come from the dirt. And then they return to dirt whenever we die. We need to know why he spoke to those things because of a very important reason. Whenever he created our spirit, he spoke to himself. You remember that he said, let us now make man in our own image. And so he spoke to himself because our spirit came from God, is sustained by God, and will return to God whenever we die. It's important for us to know that. And so then he creates Adam, and he says the only thing that is missing is that Adam needs a a partner in life. And so he says, then I've created Adam. And then remember that he took part of Adam to create Eve. Adam was created in God's image, and Eve is therefore also created in God's image because there was nothing in Adam that wasn't from God. It all came from God. And so Adam was created in God's image. Eve then was taken as part of him. And why is that important? Because Genesis 2.24 says that they will come back together then as one flesh. Man was created in God's image. Could it be possible then, summing up all of these things together, that when we are most like God, it is when we are joined together in marriage. When we are truly one flesh joined together. When we are truly one body, is it possible that that is the moment that we are most like God, that we most show his image to others, that when people look at that and they see the beauty of the joining of marriage done in the way that God intended, that it shows people what God really looks like, that that is a mirror or a prefigurement to our relationship with Christ. In Ephesians 5, 32, it says, this mystery is great. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So Paul says here, I'm I'm saying that this is a mystery. I know it. It's weird. I know it's a mystery. But how you love your spouse is a sign of how you love Christ. I know it's a mystery. I understand that it's a mystery that that we know that in general, we as a body, we are married to Christ. And I know this is strange, but there are ways that your marriage mirrors your relationship with Christ. And so this mystery doesn't mean that it's unsolvable. It means that it's difficult for us to understand. And so we want to look at a few instances in the Bible where we can draw from this mystery and we can learn more about what our relationships are supposed to look like. It's a mystery, but it's something that we can, uh, we can ever learn and grow in and improve our relationships with others. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, this is a parable that Jesus spoke. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He goes on to talk about a costly pearl. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. 
So this is drawing us back to then how our relationship is with Christ, our marriage to Christ as the body of the church. But there's a misunderstanding about this passage. See, I've heard it taught many times that, uh, that in this story we see that there was a man who found a treasure in a field. And it was so valuable and so great that he went off and he sold everything in order to buy that field in order to, to gain this treasure. And this has been taught to us many times in many ways to say that we are that man who finds the treasure. And once you find the kingdom of God, then you give up everything. You give up everything and and you go and you buy that treasure. And then you then have then the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. You see, I don't think that that's the correct way to view this story. There's a couple reasons why I I don't think that is correct. Um, The first one is that you can't find the kingdom of heaven. It finds you. You can't do it. You can search all over, but you cannot find the kingdom of heaven. It comes to you. The second reason is that you can't buy the kingdom of heaven. There is no price that you can pay to obtain heaven. There's no price that you can pay to obtain uh, the, 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 the glorious place that is the place where God lives and resides. You can't buy it. There's nothing you can do. It's true that in salvation you give up everything. It's true that you lay down your life, but he is the only one who can purchase you. So then that makes this story far more interesting because then there's something so special about this story and it's something you need to realize today. You're not the one who bought the treasure. You are the treasure. You're the treasure. Jesus is the one who found you and said, you are so valuable to me that I would pay the ultimate price, which is death in order to buy you back. That's a powerful realization. That you're the treasure. And that it was him who chose to give up everything that he had. To give up his life in order to buy you. And so we'll see as the story goes on how uh, Jesus buys us and what that means for us and our relationship with him. But first we need to understand a few things about our relationships here on earth. And so I have two points. And the first one is what kills relationships? And the answer is selfishness. What kills relationships? Selfishness is what kills relationships. You see, the essence of sin is selfishness. All the sin that I know of, I know a lot of it too. Uh, All of it that I know of is really the sin of selfishness. It really is. When you think about the things that that we all have done throughout our lives, typically it was a, a choice, a decision that we did for our own good. It was a selfish decision that didn't consider others or our relationship with Christ. There are several examples of this in the Bible. They're all through Scripture. But think of even Eve disobeyed God because she wanted to be like God for herself. She wanted to obtain knowledge and wisdom for herself. It was a selfish sin. Abraham lied about his wife because he selfishly wanted to save his own life. Achan took the forbidden loot. Because selfishly, he wanted his own riches, but it brought destruction. Over and over, we see the times in the Bible where men make terrible decisions of sin, and it is based in selfishness. It's based in a selfish desire to gain more, to get more. People who are selfish are always at war with themselves. Selfish desires are always overtaking them. There's a constant battle to get more, to have more. 
It forces us to be unhappy with what we have, to never be able to stop and enjoy life. Instead of being thankful for the blessings that we do have so often, we just look at the blessings that others have and be, and, and, and be in envy. Selfishness holds us back from so much joy in our lives. It causes us to always look for that magic something that will change our lives. And the real problem is really within our own hearts. Selfishness is so difficult on relationships. Selfishness breeds distrust. Here's here's why selfishness breeds distrust. Um, If I'm a selfish person and I know something about you, that I can use for my own good and I'm selfish, then I'll do it every time it benefits me. You see, you can't trust a selfish person because if you tell them something about yourself, if you let your guard down for just a moment, if they know a little too much about you and there's ever an opportunity for them to use it for their own good, they won't consider you in that time. They'll do it for themselves. This is why selfishness eats away at our relationships. It's so costly and so hurtful for relationships. All of you have been burned by this so many times. You know the feeling of having someone betray your trust. And it always came down to selfish desires. It always came down to something within them where they wanted to to gain something for themselves. And, And what they had was more valuable to them if used than if kept. And so people use this in in a selfish way, and it's destructive to relationships. Here's what happens. This might be a sign of an area of selfishness in your life. Selfishness, this is what, what will happen many times. Selfishness will cause us to assign extrinsic values to somebody else's shortcomings or uh, extrinsic values to our shortcomings and intrinsic values to theirs. Let me explain that. Uh, uh, what would happen is if you're late for something, you might go, well, n- no one understands how crazy my kids were this morning and how busy the traffic was and all of these things. And there's an excuse. And it's a perfectly logical excuse for you. And then as soon as somebody else makes the same mistake that you made, you go, they always do that. They're always late. Bad character again. Look at this. You see, it's okay when you do it because there's all these external factors. But as soon as somebody else makes the same mistake, you go, internally, something's flawed with them. It causes you to assign these intentions to other people. So selfishness will eat away at your relationships, at all of your relationships. When you really love someone, love breeds trust. You have to be unselfish to love. Love says that you'll lay down your life for the other person. This might mean dying for someone, literally. I mean, I think uh, this is like the ultimate trump card to say that, uh, that you would die for somebody. Uh, un- every once in a while, unfortunately, I have the opportunity uh, to watch a chick flick uh, or maybe like a Lifetime movie or something like that with my wife. And, uh, and, and it's pretty miserable, but I've noticed, uh, <laughs> I noticed this one thing that happens all the time. Um, there will be a woman who is in an abusive relationship with a guy or he's just not a good guy. Not, it's not a, a, a place where she should be and, and she shouldn't stay in this relationship, but she keeps staying. Her heart keeps pulling her. And every time she's about to leave, it happens every single time. You've seen it a million times. She's about to finally leave. And then he pulls the trump card and he goes, baby, I would die for you. And she's like, oh, and she stays. And it's like, that's like the ultimate trump card. It works every time. And I think it's like, it like conjures up this, 
romantic image, you know, in our mind, like, I would die for you. And it's an imaginary circumstance, totally imaginary. It's like in our minds, like if somehow somebody was mad at you and they shot a gun, I would Kevin Costner right in front of the bullet and, you know, and I would die for you. And that's like, oh, it's so romantic, you know. And so it's like thrown around like, oh, I would die for you. And she's like, really? Will you take out the trash for me? No. (laughs) Can you see I'm watching the game? But if a bullet, I would totally, total, I would totally do that. That part I would totally do. But no, I, I can't take out the trash. Can you help me with the dishes? No. I'm busy. I mean, dying for somebody is really a genuine act of laying down your life on a daily basis. It's not an imaginary scenario. It's this act of laying down your life. This is, this is what really dying for somebody is. It's that you lay down all of your desires and you pick up all of their desires. It's that you lay down all of your wants and you pick up all of their wants. It's that you love what they love and that you hate what they hate. The way you live out your marriage tells people so much more than you think about the way you love Christ. Because he asked us to love our spouses unconditionally, to lay down our lives. And here so often on a daily basis, we have such a difficult time genuinely laying down our lives in love for the other person. This is how we lay down our lives is that we pick up the cross We do this with Christ as well. We burn for what he burns for. We love what he loves and we hate what he hates. You know, uh, there is no space for selfishness in relationships. It is a, a cancer of love. It's a destroyer of relationships. And we must find a way to root it out of our relationships. There's this great amazing story in Genesis chapter 24. And it's so interesting. Abraham sends a servant to go find a wife for Isaac. And so you probably remember the story. Uh, Abraham sends a servant and he gets loaded up with uh, the camels and he makes this journey and he goes over. And just on the outskirts of town is a well. And he stops there and he says, I'm going to stay here. And if a woman comes along and she is getting water from the well and I ask her for a drink and she says yes. And then she gives a drink to my camels. Then I'll know that she's the one. And I've always read this story and I'm like, this is, this makes no sense to me. What a... What a dumb scenario. Like, I just think maybe the servant was really lazy. Um, I still think he's lazy, but for different reasons now. I'll tell you that in a minute. But I think he's just lazy because he comes into, like, the very first well that he comes across. And he's like, I need water for my camels anyways, so I'll just sit here. And if somebody offers to give water for my camels, then I'll be like, you're the one. Let's go. And that's it. That's how I'll figure it out. So it wasn't good enough for me to just know this story this way. I had to dig in a little bit deeper and know, like, why was this the fleece that he laid out? Why would he say, this is how I'll know if she's the right one? So I did a little bit of research. I'll tell you about it. Uh, We know from the Bible that uh, he had 10 camels on the journey. We actually know what city he came from, what city he went to. So I did a little bit of research on that. It was a particularly difficult journey. So then I started reading, how much water would a camel drink after a journey like that? The answer is, each camel would drink somewhere between 25 and 30 gallons. 
each camel. 10 camels, 25 to 30 gallons. So I was like, okay, hang on. I think I can figure out some more stuff about this. I'll look up what the average bucket size was at that time in a well. So from archaeological study, we know that the average bucket size was somewhere between two and five gallons. And then we know how the wells worked, that they had to be lowered with a rope down to a very deep place where the water was, then lifted all the way up between two and five gallons of water, then taken over. The Bible says it was poured into a trough where then the camels drank from there. So I thought, okay, well then uh, if each, if the bucket was somewhere between two and five gallons, let's just estimate that it took her three minutes to lower the bucket all the way down, fill it up, bring it back up, and then pour it into the trough. I think it's, uh, you know, a fair estimate, three minutes for each bucket then she would have moved somewhere between 60 and 90 buckets and it would have taken her more than three hours' time to do it. Here's the best part. We know that one gallon of water weighs 8.35 pounds. So then I added all that up and it totals she moved over 2,500 pounds of water. Over three hours of time and over 2,500 pounds of water. What's funny, really funny, is it says that the servant gazed at her the whole time. What a jerk. That is terrible. That is awful. He just stared at her. I told you he was lazy, didn't I? I told that guy, he's lazy. He's so lazy. No, you know, it's interesting. It says that he gazed, and that's not like the word, type of word where you look down on somebody or where you, you're, you're not... Uh, you know, it's, it's a word of being entranced or enthralled by, by you know, and I'm, I'm looking at this, I'm going, why? Why then go to the detail to describe this? I, I honestly think it wasn't that he gazed at her um, just because she was doing his work for him. I honestly think in some ways he might have been amazed at how willingly she did this for a complete stranger and the joy that she took in the work that she did. And then he goes, that. Now that is a perfect spouse. Somebody who would do that for a complete stranger. That, that is somebody I can take back to my master. And he'll say, you did well. This is a good spouse. And so we've got to remove selfishness from our relationships. Number two is what keeps relationships. And the answer is love. Love keeps relationships. Love uh, allows us to to move forward in, in our relationships. Love allows us to build our relationships. Love allows us to lay down our lives on a daily basis, to do the things that are necessary for cultivating love. And, and Christ wants us to experience love in our relationships. And so there's an illustration of this. It brings us back to Hebrews 2. And, uh, and, and, and in this illustration, this is where I was talking about that we encounter a cheating spouse. Because you see, Hosea married Gomer. And at one time, Gomer just decided that she wanted the joys and riches of life. And she left her husband and went out and was unfaithful. And as she kept pursuing joys in life and, and wealth, is, and wealth and riches and all of these things, and as she did all of these things, it led her into a life of prostitution. And Gomer becomes a prostitute. Following every whim and every desire in her life, she goes out and eventually she becomes a prostitute. And in this time, it was not the type uh, that we would think of where she might work somewhere 
and there, she, she you know, accepts clients in this place or anything like that, this literally would mean that as she became a prostitute, that she would be owned by a master, and he would do whatever he wanted to her, and then whenever he got tired of her, then he would sell her off to the next person. And these times of, of selling off the prostitutes was not a, uh, a, a person-to-person type of transaction. It was worse than that. Whenever a woman would be in prostitution like this, what they would do is that all of these prostitutes would be brought to an auction. And they would be brought to this auction, and there in the middle of the room would be a platform, and they would place the woman up there, and they would strip her naked, and then men would bid for her. And this is the life that Gomer found herself in. Standing on a platform, exposed, naked, and men just bidding the highest price for her. God does something strange and and weird and, and something that's so hard to make sense of. And he tells Hosea, what I want you to do is I want you to go there and I want you to buy her back. I know she was your wife. I know she cheated on you and and she did this terrible thing and I know she left and now she's been in prostitution and, and she's in a bad place, but I want you to go there and I want you to buy her. And then when you buy her, I want you to bring her back home and I want you to tell her you, you didn't buy her so that she could be a slave for you. You bought her so that she could be your wife again. And so Hosea does, he goes to the auction, he pays the highest price far above what anybody else will pay. And I, I know it didn't happen like this, but I like to think of it this way, that then he takes her home and he picks her up and he carries her across the threshold once again as he had done on their wedding day. And he sets her down. He says, Gomer, I, I went to that auction and I bought you, but not because I want you to be my slave and not because I want to be your master. I just want to be your husband again. I want you to be my wife. You can leave again if you want, but I'll always be here. I don't own you. I just want to be your husband. And I want you to be my wife. Now, God asked Hosea to do this very strange act, and then God explains to him why. He says, Hosea, what you just did for Gomer... That's what I'm going to do for my people. Because they've followed every whim and every desire, looking for wealth and riches, joy and happiness. And they went out seeking pleasure and ended up in bondage. They ended up getting owned by the idols that they worshipped. And they're in bondage now. He said, I'm going to do that for my people. I'm going to go to that place. And here we are, naked in our sin, exposed for what we've done. And Jesus Christ paid the highest price there is to pay. And he gave his life and he bought you back. He picks you up. He carries you across the threshold. He sets you down and he says, I know you went off. I know you betrayed me. I know all the things you've done. 
I know exactly where you've been and what you've done. But I bought you. And not so you could be my slave. Not so I could be your master. And we go back to this scripture where it says, no longer will you call me Bailey, but you will call me Ishi. And it says, there, co- there will come a day, says the Lord, where he will say to his people, don't you call me Bali anymore. You call me Ishi. And here's the translation of that. Don't call me master. You call me husband. And he said, that's what I do for my people. That I bought them and I paid that price for them. And I don't want to be their master. I want to be their husband and I want them to be my wife. We have the opportunity in so many different varying ways throughout our lives to be a Hosea to a Gomer. Whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in a relationship, whether it's to someone in this town who is lost and hurting, we have the opportunity to show his grace and his love. And every time you daily make a decision to die to yourself in your marriage, you reenact this act that Christ did for us. And your spouse gets a tangible way to see and feel and experience exactly what is taking place in this story. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Meadowbrook Church. We hope you stay connected by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NBC Ocala.